Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we are speaking with Kurt Harrison. He's the founder and co-head of the Global Sustainability Practice at Russell Reynolds Associates. He's active across a number of industries as a senior member of several different practices, including board and CEO advisory partners, investment management, global banking and markets, and private equity. Over his nearly 15 years with the firm, Kurt has recruited C-suite leaders and board directors to some of the firm's largest global clients. He helps his clients build teams of transformational leaders who can meet today's challenges and anticipate the digital, economic, and political trends that are reshaping the global business environment. Their purpose, we exist to improve the way the world is led. Kurt is recognized as an industry leader in ESG and sustainability and a sought-after public speaker and guest lecturer, recently named Top Voice in the Green Economy by LinkedIn, and a highly regarded author on ESG topics and a number of groundbreaking white papers have been published in the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance. He's a partner managing director at Russell Reynolds in the financial services sector. Kurt also operates as a member of the board of advisors at NACD, New York chapter. Hello, Kurt. Welcome to Sustainable Minds. Well, thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. Yeah. I always like to start off with, I'm kind of curious, how did you arrive here? What sort of motivated you, especially in your youth? What journey were you on that got you here? Yeah, I think it's interesting because we did a uh, joint venture partnership with the UN Global Compact about four or five years ago. And we interviewed and assessed 55 global leaders around sustainability and tried to find out what were some of the things that made them tick, some things that were typical of them that may not be typical for your average C-suite executive. And we asked them how they came to this. Were they born into this? Did they evolve over time? Or was there an aha moment where things kind of kicked in? And the vast majority of them, and again, these are already acknowledged as global leaders around sustainability, the vast majority of them either evolved to it over time or there was an aha moment. Very few people, even from Paul Pullman on down, are born with an inherent mission orientation and use that to drive them toward corporate organizational success. So Mm -hmm. I am in that bucket as well. I sort of evolved to it over time. And I would say there was an evolution and then there was an aha moment. So the evolution was we began getting questions from our financial services clients about ESG. And quite frankly, we didn't have a very good response to them. And so I just kind of dove in, became self-educated around these topics, began attending conferences in person back when you could do that pre-COVID. And I also spent time with our impact colleagues internally. And we have a, a large global executive search firm I happen to sit within financial services, 
but we have a healthcare team, technology, industrial, energy, and nonprofit. And my nonprofit colleagues at the same time were being asked questions around impact investing and ESG as well. So I thought, it looks like we're both looking at opposite sides of the same coin. Why don't we pull together our for-profit expertise with our nonprofit expertise and create a more holistic advisory capability for our clients around ESG? So that was all great. And it was sort of theoretical. And I put together a business plan to launch a dedicated practice for the firm. And then we were invited to pitch a search for the head of ESG for an alternative asset manager. And I thought, this is going to be great. And we lost the pitch. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, how did we lose? So I called the client and I said, how did we lose? And he said, we talked to all the big global search firms about this. No one has any idea what they're talking about regarding ESG. So if you could figure this out, you could win a lot of business. <laughs> and so that that was my right? aha moment. So yeah. I had the evolution underway. I had the predisposition. I saw the, the public-private spheres kind of merging together. But the aha moment was a client losing a pitch to a client. And so that reminds me of a quote from Nelson Mandela. I never lose. I either win or learn. Right. And in this case, it was a great learning experience. Exactly. I love yeah. when that happens. I want to drill into a couple of things here. In an article you wrote for the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, it, the, the article, you have several. This is CEOs and Sustainability. You say that we now have clear data. This is about two sides of the same coin. We now have clear data to show that thinking about both shareholders and stakeholders are not opposing goals. In fact, sustainability action unlocks sizable business opportunities. So I think I want to, there's kind of like two questions baked in there. Tell us about what this data showed and how that it works that they aren't opposing goals for shareholders and stakeholders. Yeah, that has really been an important evolution in the role and the composition of the chief sustainability officer as a title. So many years ago, the chief sustainability officer tended to be someone who evolved out of CSR, right? Corporate and social responsibility, or they involved out of supply chain risk management, or they evolved out of employee health and wellness, right? Safety, mm -hmm. employee, employee mm -hmm. safety. So depending upon what industry you were in, many of those, some of those were more or less important, but those were the roles that ended up beginning to evolve into a head of sustainability, broadly defined. And I think the biggest evolution that we've seen over the past four or five years is the role of the chief sustainability officer has gone from being a mid-level functional operational role to a top of the house senior strategic business value creation role. And it's very important for an organization to understand and acknowledge and vocalize how these roles are, in fact, business value creation roles. Because an organization who has a best-in-class sustainability framework and leadership construct is going to win more business from its clients. They're going to increase their share of wallet because they'll be viewed as a more sustainable vendor, a sustainable supplier. They're going to perform far better with their investors. They will keep their investors happy by measuring and reporting against a number of different sustainability criteria. 
They're going to keep their regulators happy in terms of measuring and reporting all the different dimensions of sustainability that are important from a regulatory perspective. And they're going to attract and retain best-in-class next-generation talent because the generation coming through today is much more mission-oriented than perhaps, Gary, you and I were at the beginning phases (laughs) of our career. And so these people want to work for organizations that are as passionate about purpose as they are about profit. So they want to make money and they want to be successful, but they want to do it in a purposeful, mission-driven way. I'm going to get into that a little later on here. But something that I, I read that caught me because we're a corporate brand agency. So we help organizations, corporations define themselves and state a lot of things. And it's, it's really big. We're not a consumer good branding. So there's a difference there. But you say, or the article says, a brand first approach is problematic because it is unlikely to lead to the transformation as required to thrive in the new era of stakeholder capitalism. Kind of break that down for us. Yeah, what sustainability cannot be perceived as is a marketing ploy. It cannot be perceived as purely trying to burnish a brand that might have other issues beyond this. So you don't want to ever be accused of greenwashing by your investors, by your clients, by your companies that you deal with, by your vendors, etc. So it's got to be woven into the overall corporate sustainability strategy of the organization. And when we're recruiting best-in-class leaders for sustainability or ESG, Mm -hmm. they always ask the same two questions. Every single time, same two questions. The first question is always, how important is this to the board and CEO of the organization? Because if it isn't a fundamental corporate strategic priority, they're not interested because they know they won't be successful without that mandate from the top. So that's Absolutely. always the most important thing. The second thing is to whom does this role report? And it needs to not report into marketing to avoid any semblance of brand or greenwashing. It has to report into the business because as we talked about, these are business value creation roles. It's really cross-functional. So it has to be a seat at the table. It is enterprise-wide. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm always curious when we talk to clients and we help them in these areas. Is this about risk mitigation or value creation? And when they when topics around risk risk mitigation come up, I know they're concerned about image and the way they're going to be perceived. And it's not really at their core that they're trying to have make this evolution, have this aha, and start to live this this way that the business world, the world's evolving. So it's kind of, that's that's well, very interesting. It's very interesting because it really puts the CEOs under a magnifying glass in the sense that who are the CEOs who have had that aha moment? Because if they're being dragged into all this by kicking and screaming and still want to operate the way they've been operating the last 10 years the transformational change is not really authentic. And it's interesting to me how people really find out who the visionary leaders, who, what do you ask when you're interviewing or do you, how do you get at that, the truth? 
Yes. So we partnered with the UN Global Compact a number of years ago for that survey I mentioned. And in interviewing these 55 global leaders of sustainability, we identified four inherent hallmarks that sort of define a sustainable mindset in a senior executive and or a board director. So these four attributes stood out in a way that they did not stand out for executives who did not come from a sustainability background. So those four attributes are, number one, these are multi-level systems thinkers. They incorporate a much broader worldview into their own corporate or business line strategy. Mm. So they're not just thinking about their own company or their own industry or their own geography. They're thinking bigger, broader macro themes and how those can impact and influence and affect the organization going forward. So they are multi-level systems thinkers. They're also very inclusive leaders. They are experts at stakeholder inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. They don't manage people, they include people, and they can influence very credibly across an incredibly wide array of stakeholders, right? So they're very inclusive mindset. The days of the Jack Welch autocrat are over, and you have to be much more inclusive. The third piece is that these are really transformational leaders. They are disruptive. They challenge the status quo. They say, why can't we do things differently? So they will not accept, well, this is how we've always done it. They, in fact, seek out new ways to do it better, right? So they're very disruptive. They're very transformational. Everyone talks about business transformation. It's very hard to achieve. But these people have that change orientation mindset that gets change to actually happen. And then the fourth piece is these are very long-term oriented individuals. They are focused on long-term value creation and are willing to make very unpopular short-term decisions for the long-term benefit of the organization. Mm, So those four dimensions are what we assess for and what we look for and what we would consider to be best-in-class sustainable leaders. It takes courage and vision, and they have to stand up for what they really believe in their heart and soul. Often when we talk to people, I use this graphic, and it says, in winning organizations, leaders drive values, values drive behaviors, behaviors drive culture, and culture drives performance. Uh, starts at the top. I know you are working with leaders and boards. You're not really at the core of some things, but maybe you are. And so the old saying, culture eats strategy for breakfast or lunch or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) What have you noticed, and maybe through the leaders that you work with, what's the state of corporate culture today? And I've got a few questions around this. First one is, what has changed? Yeah, I think the biggest change is the sort of the ebb and flow, if you will, of the primacy and acceptance of stakeholder capitalism, right? Because it was shareholder capitalism for 300 years. Yes. Yes. And then 2020 came around and it became more stakeholder capitalism. And that became very important, people trying to live up to that. And now, again, you're getting the inevitable pushback, the pendulum swinging back toward it's not about stakeholders, it's about generating revenue and fiduciary responsibility and things like that. So there's a natural ebb and flow to this. 
I think, but the conversation's not going away. And so what that means is that the change has occurred, that stakeholder capitalism may ebb and flow, but it's going to be with us going forward. And so best-in-class companies will figure out how to incorporate that into their long-term strategy in a way that works for the organization, but also engages the, their employees, their clients, their communities, and their investors. I think what I call the great disruption, the pandemic, work from home, all these racial and societal issues that have popped up and in climate, I think this is just really propelled and amplified this whole notion around stakeholder capitalism and sustainability and ESG. It's, as you know, it's blown up into such a huge, huge topic. Talking about CEOs and that piece I've read, what do you see in a leader that cares about their people and their people are their culture? How do you search for that or what kind of lens do you use when you are analyzing candidates? Yes, yeah, so we're weaving that into our assessment processes for CEO succession, uh-huh. for board director succession, and for searches around those as well. I mean, in a perfect world, if a board is doing its job correctly, we should never get a call from any company or organization saying, we need to hire a CEO like right away. Because the board's most important function is CEO succession, right? Yeah. To have a pipeline of talent. So we're trying to get ahead of that and to engage our clients on very defined, sophisticated, systematic CEO succession processes that include an assessment of the internal candidates as well as a benchmark of external candidates so that if and when a change needs to be made, it's made very quickly and seamlessly and efficiently, Mm. not like in the press, like, oh man, CEO's fired, what to do now, right? So we're trying to be ahead of that. And so when we're assessing candidates now, we're always assessing for them for managerial excellence, intellectual horsepower, intellectual curiosity, attention to detail, but we're also layering onto the traditional metrics of executive excellence, the four attributes that I mentioned that lead into a sustainable mindset, right? Because if you think about it, our firm being one of the biggest global leadership advisory firms in the world, right? We're doing CEO succession and board succession and search all day, every day around the world. And if we decide as an organization that's very engaged in this space, if we decide that a sustainable mindset is a prerequisite for any candidate to be considered as a credible CEO or board director candidate or C-suite candidate, we can literally change the way the world is led. Wow. And that's our mission. Wow. That's your purpose. That's Um, incredible. I never thought of that, of an outside firm really having that much power, but it's true. I want to build on that topic. And you wrote about this, the need for empathy from leaders. Sustainability can't feel like an abstract concept to a lot of people. But I love this one. To really commit, people need to be able to touch and feel it. It will ultimately require a different set of leadership skills than in the past with softer skills like empathy, authenticity, and self-awareness becoming even more important. Yeah, I mean, it's the EQ as well as the IQ, right? right? And that is a fairly new phenomenon as we've seen. Next generation best in class leaders are inclusive, 
are engaging, are disruptive, are long-term oriented. And so I think that the challenge is how do you win over the hearts and minds of an organization? And every organization is different. Every structure is different. Every culture is different. And so one thing that we've seen to be an effective lever to mm-hmm. doing that is to lead with the emphasis upon the business value creation elements of embracing sustainability, right? Yeah. If you make it clear to the organization that we're going to win more business, we're going to get more investors involved in our organization, and we're going to be able to attract and retain best-in-class talent and de-risk our organization going forward, then the EQ piece is easier for them to buy into, yeah. right? Because mm-hmm. now we've already figured out we're going to be more successful commercially, i.e. financially, but we're also going to benefit from better work-life balance and a more diverse population of employees and wellness and employee healthcare. So once you've grounded them in the commercial accretiveness of embracing this, it's easier to get them to buy into the more societal elements of this. Yeah. Hmm. Most aren't educated or trained to feel. They're educated to think. And uh, in my business, I have to penetrate that corporate veneer that's there sometimes because they don't want to appear to be vulnerable, right? They don't want to say, well, I don't know, or they don't want to talk about their feelings. But sometimes those can be very important and they're very human. And so it's really important. So this new mindset of leadership, are there any competencies that we didn't cover or? No, I mean, I think it's important, again, to emphasize that we're not neglecting traditional executive management excellence, right? Mm -hmm. That is still the foundation of what makes a great leader. We're adding on to it new layers of assessment, new dimensions to dive into to predict future success for the individual as well as the organization. Changing, uh, going off to a, uh, a paragraph in one of these articles, uh, your advice was to communicate and build employee engagement. And uh, there was something in here that I find that's always very enlightening is that you say, don't forget to tap into employees to drive innovation. Your front line is often a critical source of creativity and inspiration for sustainability practices. Absolutely. So it is important that the mandate comes from the top, that the board and the CEO and the leadership of the organization are vocally committed to this. But in reality, the execution and implementation takes place at a pretty grassroots level, right? So that is where you're going to find the more passionate employee base. That's where you're going to find the true mission orientation of the organization. And so when they get the green light from senior leadership that, yes, this is important, they feel enabled and enfranchised to go out and execute upon pursuing purpose as well as profit. If they don't see the directive from the top, they're like, is this going to hurt my career? Should I leave and go to another company? Mm -hmm. All these things. So the grassroots implementation is the result of getting comfort and guidance from the executive leadership that this is the right thing to do. 
Right. We are surprised often that out of all the clients that were involved in ESG initiatives through reporting, how few spend time educating their employees on their ESG strategy, which should be really their operate, I mean, you know, getting closer to being core to their operational business strategy. And they don't spend enough time educating their own people so that they can build this swell that this groundswell that can feed into what where they're trying to go. We have one client that has been a long-term client and they do, val- it started from their values and ethics training that they did for their employees every quarter. But they've evolved it to, since their values of now one of the newer CEO in the last, what, five, 10 years, Mitch has been Seven. there. Yeah, at Avery Corporation. He made sustainability one of his values. And so he started doing these training kits. They weren't kits as much as generating, op- generating oh. conversation and awareness and conversation amongst the employees and the managers with each other. And that surprises us. That surprises us that more people don't spend time really bringing along their employees when we know people-first companies are the ones that are winning. That's right. And I think that is why we have been so busy for the past four or five years recruiting sort of enterprise-wide heads of ESG or heads of sustainability, because in almost every organization, there are pockets of people working on ESG. And if it's measurement or reporting or implementation, et cetera. But most organizations three years ago didn't have that one senior person at the top to connect the dots about what's being done around the organization and create a more consistent and systematic and organized framework. Framework. So these people come in and they create the policy, they create the framework, but then they integrate that policy and framework across the organization. So these are not 50,000 foot white paper writers. These are people who are strategic leaders, but who roll up their sleeves and get things done, execution, integration, implementation, And the way they do that is, as you said, educating their colleagues about why this is important. Yeah, you wrote uh, that CSOs have more impact when aligned to the CEO, reporting to the CEO. You called them, when you call, you call CSOs that report to CEO empowered CSOs. Elaborate on that. What makes them empowered? How will I know an empowered CSO when I see one? Yeah, so they're an individual who has the support, the implicit and explicit support of the board and CEO. So they can go out and create a best-in-class policy. They can go out and create a best-in-class framework. They'll have the resources to do all of that. And they'll have the mandate from the top to lead the enterprise-wide integration across business lines, strategies, regions, and geographies that is crucial to the success of the organization. If they didn't have the CEO's support, that is pretty much impossible to do because you won't get the mind share and the support of the line of business leaders to implement it correctly. Yeah. 
And I would imagine when you talk about alignment on making sustainability transformation a priority, these are the people along with the uh, CEO that's really going to drive this sustainability transformation. Yeah, you've seen organizations create new corporate strategies of which sustainability is a fundamental pillar, right? And we're going to be a values-driven organization. And of our three, four, five pillars, one of them is sustainability, right? And that is almost table stakes to be considered as a forward-thinking organization. Yeah, I want to be in your business because one thing you said is that the demand for ESG talent is insatiable. And everywhere I turn and read and look in our business, it's everywhere. And with our podcast, we're talking to experts around the world. And there's so many different pockets and uh, yeah. areas of this. I would think that it's uh, very challenging to find somebody who is not just an expert in one little area, but that could really initiate change and understanding to the diversity of the areas. I mean, for us, it's really interesting because we've been in, we started our business 38 years ago. We were specialists in annual reports before the internet. Before the internet, reports were the most important document a public company published every year. It really got senior leadership together talking to at least approving the messaging, ideally, (laughs) of what the platform, the communication platform would be for the company. But as soon as the internet came, of course, they became more of a compliance document and it moved away from that. But ever since that you've had a situation where you can't really evaluate a company's future without having a lot of the non-financial information reported. I see that for us, we see that all these different silos that we would have to interact with as silos all of a sudden are connected and everything's converging where even when it's important not to have branding be the leading driver, it's still important for it to be part of the picture coming from the top and being authentic, not just being slapped on and being a campaign. It's got to be core to the heart and soul of that company. But For us, it's been very, very interesting how ESG reporting has become so the chief people officer, the chief sustainability officer. To build on what you're saying, Kirk talks about in the next year or two, you'll start to deconstruct ESG. You argue it's possible, it's impossible to find a real head of ESG that really is a specialist in in the environment or the S, the social or the governance. So rocket building on that, what does that look like in two years, Kurt? Three years, yeah. I mean... I think the point that I was making was, and I've been doing this now for several years, I have yet to find the individual anywhere on the planet, and we are a global (laughs) search firm, who is a world-class leader on the E, a world-class leader on the S, and a world-class leader on the G, all in one person. 
If that person exists, please have them call me yeah. because <laughs> we have a lot of things me. to talk about. Sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> yeah. So what's really happened is that as we recruit heads of ESG, and I have ESG in sort of quotation marks here, it's really become all about the E. So all of the heads of ESG that we've recruited for companies around the world, none of them have been asked to advise the board on governance. Okay. They're not looking, they have plenty of governance specialization, consultants, they've made a lot of progress. Very few of the people that we've recruited have been asked to lead the S function, say DE&I, employee health and welfare, benefits, etc. That's certainly part of it. But DE&I has become its own function, its own initiative requiring its own leadership. And DE&I reports into human resources, right? Yes. The E, which is all about climate and emissions and measurement and reporting, that's what everybody's very focused on. And that reports into the business, right? So if if the DEI reports into HR, ESG, which is mostly the E, reports into the business. And so what that means, a couple of things. Number one, these are business value creation roles, very separate from the S or the G. And number two, it takes a certain kind of person to be credible in those roles. And it really is a business person first, right? Because if they're going to be successful in the integration of ESG across an organization, they're going to have to be viewed as credible with the business line leaders. So the template that we've seen for what we would consider to be best in class ESG leadership is someone who began their career in the industry, whatever industry it might be. It could be energy, industrial, healthcare, technology, Mm -hmm. financial services, doesn't matter. But they began their career in the industry, did that for five, six, seven, eight years, and then thought, what's next in my life and in my career? And they decided to go to business school. And while they were there, they were introduced to sustainable finance or Mm -hmm. sustainable investing and said, wow, this is actually really interesting. I want to pivot my career in this direction. So they concentrate in sustainability, maybe bolt on an MPA in public policy or environmental science. And then afterwards, they go work for an NGO or they go work for an impact investment fund or they go work for a consulting firm around sustainability. And they do that for a couple of years. So now they have the early career experience in the industry. They have academic credentials specific to sustainability. And they have hands-on practitioner experience at an NGO or an impact fund or a consulting firm. And they can then synthesize all of that and go in-house to be a head of ESG and resonate and influence across an incredibly wide array of stakeholders, both internally and externally, to build and implement a best-in-class ESG program. Interesting. It's really interesting to think sort of behind the curtain. it t- A lot's going on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, your head of ESG today actually has to have ESG domain expertise. That sounds very simple, but it wasn't always the case. Yeah. The, <laughs> what I call ESG 1.0 several years ago, the CEO got tired of being asked questions about ESG that he or she couldn't answer. And they said, can we just get someone internally here to deal with all these ESG questions? 
So they took a repurposed internal executive, usually within legal or compliance or marketing. And they said, okay, you, you're the ESG person. Figure this out, deal with these investor questions and get this off my plate. And that worked for a year or two. But in 2020, that didn't work anymore. Yeah. Talk about figuring it out. We often talk to and help mid-cap and small-cap companies start off on this developing strategies uh, around sustainability and ESG. What advice would you give a first-time a company that's just starting to think about this, get their head around it? What are maybe the top three things that they should think about and do? Yeah, the first thing they should do is a materiality assessment of what's important to their company, their industry, their region, their geography. It's going to be very different for a consumer packaged goods company or an energy company or a healthcare company or a tech company. They're all going to have different things that are important to them. Try to figure out two or three things that are material to your organization that if you improve upon them, you will improve your organization's operational efficiency, right? So put it in a business context. So I would say companies at that phase would be better off having a chief sustainability officer who is focused on improving operational efficiency, right? So improving energy efficiency, water efficiency, real estate, green buildings, lead certification, supply chain, circular economy, recycling. So really operationalize the initiative because who doesn't want improved operational efficiency, right? You're going to get buy-in from everybody if you embark upon a sustainability program Mm -hmm. designed to improve operational efficiency. Yeah. Okay. Terrific. I'm going to kind of wrap it up here a little bit. 10 years ago, I was doing CSR reports. A lot has changed over the past 10 years. So I don't know. What does the next 5, 10 years look like? And I know this is a big behag question, but you see a lot of what's going on out there. What do you think that 5, 10 years from now, this whole notion of sustainability and ESG The thing that we are seeing most often talked about in the marketplace is climate and emissions, measurement, reporting, automation. So I think that as ESG begins to be deconstructed, and the G will always be very important, but a G is a board-level conversation in the boardroom governance. The S will always be extremely important. These are HR human capital issues reporting into HR, the E, which is really at this point, climate is going to be paramount. And I think that's where we're seeing most demand from our clients in every industry sector and geography, people who can lead a a client initiative, a climate center of excellence, a climate strategy. That is the next wave. Well, I guess without us being successful in the E category, S and G aren't going to (laughs) matter over time. So... uh, Yeah, no, you're absolutely right there. Hmm. Okay. Kurt, is there anything that top of mind for you that we didn't cover or uh, we're fine? This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for your time. No, I think we hit upon the important points of how 
this really is a, a long-term commercial value creation exercise with the happy side benefit of making the world a better place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that brings up something to me because we're still fighting on Wall Street, people's short-term you know, vision and wanting their quarterly reports and wanting, I mean, we're going to have ESG quarterly reports, I mean, pretty soon. How those two elements of being long-term and short-term people just, it's a struggle. Do you think that struggle will ever go away? No, I, I don't think the struggle will ever go away. And I don't think, but I also don't think that ESG is ever going away either, right? Because, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. ESG will definitely no. go away when we solve climate change, mm-hmm. and when racial and social injustice are no longer an issue, yeah. and when everyone has perfect governance. When all those things happen, <laughs> then ESG will go away for sure. But we, we ain't there yet. We ain't there yet. Oh, man. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kurt. Nice to meet you. Yeah. All right. Nice to meet you as well. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.